We're beginning today a brand new summer series that is a brand new series that begins at kind of a really old place. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to start with me today in Matthew chapter 1. And I say a really old place because we actually started at this exact same spot the first Sunday of December in 2013. Now, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They've got Bibles that you can use today. They've got Bibles that you can have today. So if you'd like to have a Bible open as we study God's Word, just wave at them. They'll give you one. If you don't know where yours is, or it's been a long, long time since you've even remember having a Bible, just put your name in this one and keep it and take it home and start reading it. And today we begin a brand new series about the life of Jesus through the lens you're going to see of the life of David. And in Matthew chapter 1, as you turn to Matthew chapter 1, I want you to notice a few things. One, I want you to notice that Matthew chapter 1, for those of you who are maybe brand new to church, or maybe this is your first time ever in church, Matthew chapter 1 is the first book of the New Testament, or the second part of the Bible. Um, For thousands of years, if you're Jewish, or if you have Jewish friends or Jewish relatives, um, the, the Jewish people still study the Hebrew Bible, which is the first 39 books of the Christian Bible. We call that the Old Testament. The word testament means covenant, or it means promise. Literally, for 2,000 years of Old Testament history, God promised that a Savior would come who would change everything. So for more than 2,000 years, 39 different books were written to basically say, at some point in the future, a Savior is coming who will change everything, and that was the promise. That was the old covenant. That was the old promise. The New Testament, or the new promise, was written about basically what happened when that promise was fulfilled. It was written about the life of Jesus. And God chose to start the New Testament, the New Covenant. God chose to start the second episode, the sequel to his promise, with the story of Jesus by the, through the words of Matthew, who was a friend of Jesus, who was a disciple of Jesus, who would have known Jesus very well, and who decided to write about the life of Jesus. And what's so interesting about the way that Matthew begins the life of Jesus is most of us in this Christian world in the year 2014 do not begin the story of Jesus at the same place that Matthew begins the story of Jesus. So I want to start with where the Bible begins the story of Jesus. I want to start with where the Bible begins to say, here's how that old, old promise came about, it happened. And here's what Matthew says in Matthew 1, verse 1, it's our only verse today. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I want to stop right there. I want to read it one more time. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, in that first verse, we see several things. First, we see the word Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means Savior. Later in Scripture, we'll see Jesus called Jesus Christ. Christ is a Greek word that means Savior. Of course, the English word is Savior. So basically, Matthew is saying, for thousands of years... People have talked about the Savior, and he opens his book by saying, he's here. And more than saying he's here, he says, here's what you need to know about him. Now, the reason this is important to us is because we have coined at Journey 2014 as the year of Jesus. And we said last September that when it hits 2014, the calendar, we're going to take 52 Sundays and we're just going to study the life and the teachings of Jesus. And we did that starting in January. We studied Jesus' mission. 
And we looked for almost 10 weeks at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, the very first words of his ministry were you need to change your life and become more like me. And then in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he told us how to do that. He laid out the mission of what his ministry would do. After that, we did a series called The Veil where we looked at Jesus' ministry. And we saw that the sole purpose of Jesus coming to planet Earth was to end our separation from God so you and I could be as close to God as Adam and Eve were close to God in the Garden of Eden. And then for five weeks, we looked at Jesus' messages in a series that we call Practical Jesus. We kind of asked these questions, what would Jesus say about this? And what would Jesus say about this? And how would Jesus tell me to handle this? And we looked at five real practical messages, and we looked at Jesus' messages. But this summer, we're going to look at Jesus the man. We're going to look at... The type of man Jesus was spiritually. Why? Because the word Christian, if you're a Christian, the word Christian means follower of Jesus. If you're a Christian, it should be your goal in life to become more like Jesus. So if we spend our summer looking at the life of Jesus, it will help us understand more how to become like Jesus. And then we'll go into the fall, and we're going to do a series this fall on Jesus' miracles the greatest miracles of Jesus. And then later in the fall, we're going to do a six-week sermon series on Jesus' methods of discipleship. How did Jesus help someone learn who God was and teach them to really get close to God? And then at Christmas, we're going to do a series looking at Jesus' mayhem, how when Jesus came to planet Earth, he literally messed up the world of anyone and everyone he came into contact with in a sermon series we're going to call Scandal. And we're going to look at what happened when Jesus came to planet Earth and just flipped everyone out of their minds. But this summer, we look at Jesus, the man. And according to the Bible, here's how we're introduced to Jesus, the man. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the word genealogy comes from the root word Genesis. If you've grown up around church or the Bible, you realize there's actually a book of the Bible called Genesis. The word Genesis means beginning or the source of. We say the story of. This is basically Matthew saying, hey, for 2,000 years, there was this old promise that a Savior was going to come and change everything. And this is his story. And this is where his story begins. But he begins at an interesting place for those of us who are who have maybe dabbled in the church but don't know a lot about it. Because when I read those words, some of you are thinking, that doesn't sound right. This is Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. And you're thinking, time out, that, that, that's not right. Jesus wasn't the son of David, he was the son of Joseph. His dad's name wasn't David, and he was the son of Mary. Uh, David, I don't even know that David was like an uncle. Like, I don't even know that David is listed in the New Testament. Why would Matthew say the beginning of Jesus' story is with David, Jesus was not related to David. Yet Matthew says this is Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. The son of David is a title used of Jesus 17 times in the New Testament even though David lived a thousand years before Jesus. So Matthew wasn't trying to tell us who Jesus' dad was. Matthew wasn't trying to tell us who Jesus' grandpa was. Matthew wasn't trying to tell us what was on the birth certificate. He was trying to tell us something really important about David. You see, David used to be the king of Israel, and the royal line of Israel flowed through David and the descendants of David. So when Matthew said this is Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, this title connected Jesus to the royal throne of Israel. Now, for you and I, that's not that big a deal because there's no royal line in the United States of America. But if this were in Great Britain, this would be a big deal. 
Because they still do that stuff over there, and they still celebrate that stuff over there. And they celebrate that stuff so much that when there's a kid born into the royal line, even those of us who don't even care because we're not impacted know that his name is what? George, yeah, why do you know that? I mean, who cares about the royal line of Great Britain, right? That has no impact on our life. But we know his name because he's everywhere. Why? Because the son of royalty is a big deal. And Matthew is saying this is Jesus, and he is the son of royalty, and this is a big deal. This would have caught the attention of the Jewish reader much more than it catches your and my attention. We read it and we're like, yeah, big deal. They would have read and thought, wait a minute, could he one day be king? So this title connected Jesus to the royal throne of Israel. This title also connected Jesus to the messianic throne of Israel. Now remember, the word Messiah means savior. Messiah is a Hebrew word. It's the word Mashiach, translated in English as Messiah, but it means savior. So what Matthew is saying is this is Jesus, and the people of Israel are hearing, and he might one day be king, and he could possibly be the savior of the world that those 39 books, that old promise that they've promised us for more than 2,000 years. And it all boiled down to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. I think it's on your sermon notes. If you haven't already, I'd encourage you to reach inside your bulletin and tear off that back page so you can take notes and follow along with where we are and keep that in your Bible as we learn this summer the life of Jesus through the life of David. But we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, That this was God's promise to David. David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. And your throne will be established forever. The people of Israel were waiting for a king in Israel related to David to sit upon the throne and to save their their nation and to save the world. And Matthew introduces us to a man who, who, according to Matthew, he says this is him. But he calls him Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Now, we could pause right now and say, Christian, that's a pretty cool fact, and I'm glad I know that. I never really put that together before, but that, you know, okay, I get that. And, and we could just fly right on, and we could keep studying the life of Jesus. Or we could stop, and we could look around a little bit. A few years ago, uh, I got to drive across the state of Washington with Danielle and the kids, and it's one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth. Danielle and I love driving trips Um, We love to see different parts of America. We love to see from the desert to the ocean to the mountains. And we often on our trips, if there's a beautiful view, we won't just snap a picture driving by. We'll actually find a place to pull off and we'll walk around. We'll take pictures. We'll get out. We'll, We'll stop long enough not just to enjoy the moment but remember the moment. We live in a world that is so busy that oftentimes at our greatest moments we pause but we never stop and we can't even remember like the greatest things going on in our life because we never stop. So what I want to do as a church this summer is I want to stop. Instead of pausing at the life of David and skipping over, I want to stop. And I want to get out of our spiritual cars. And I want to spend a few weeks, 12 to be exact, looking at the life of David through what we call inductive Bible study. Now, those of you who are Bible nerds, this isn't on your note, but you'll want to learn this. Inductive Bible study, you should write that down on your notes if you're a Bible nerd. If not, ignore the next 30 seconds. Check your text messages, their weather, or whatever, and then come back to us. Um, But inductive Bible study is the process of learning the deeper things of Scripture. And inductive Bible study has three three parts of it. The first part of of, of inductive Bible study is observation. You look very clearly at what the Bible says. The second part of inductive Bible study 
is interpretation. So you look at it, you see it real clearly, and then you say, okay, what, what is this saying here? The third part of inductive Bible study is application. So basically, it's a way to read the Bible slowly, clearly, and with purpose. What do I see? What does it say? What does it mean? What I want to do with the life of David this year is I want to look at the life of David, I want to stop, and I want to observe it. And then I want to interpret this man, David, who is so important in the life of Jesus that Matthew list him first in the genealogy, the the source of who Jesus is, and then I want to figure out what we can apply to our life. So that's what we're going to try to do this summer. Why? Because according to Scripture, David was the man with the God-shaped heart. If David could be described any way simply in one sentence, David would be described in Scripture as the man with the God-shaped heart. And we are this summer going to take 12 messages in a series that we're calling Bedtime Stories, We learned two summers ago, I I did a series called Bedtime Stories, and I just told the greatest stories in the Bible and how they relate to our life. I told the stories that we would sit on the end of our our kids' beds and tell them if we told them a Bible story every night, but not just the story, but how to apply that story. And every summer, we've done another volume of Bedtime Stories. So this summer, we're going to look at Bedtime Stories, greatest stories in the Bible about the life of David and how they apply to our life. Now, Before we study David to learn about Jesus, the son of David, i got to give you a little background to set up why God was looking for a man with a God-shaped heart. And to fast forward through the Bible background, we got to go past Adam and Eve. we got to go past Russell Crowe and Noah and the ark. we got to get past um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Um, we got to get past Joseph, and we got to work our way up in our minds, or at least in the movies we've seen, to at least Charlton Heston or the Prince of Egypt, um, one of those in the Ten Commandments. we got to work ourselves to Moses. And as we work ourselves to Moses, we see Moses lead basically a generation of 2.1 million Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to their own country, what is modern-day Israel. And for the first time, Israel is a nation in a land. And here's what we find out. Moses established the nation of Israel as a theocracy. Now, that's a word we don't use very often. Theocracy means it's a nation that is overseen and under God. It's a nation that God is in charge of. God is the president. God is the Congress. God is the Senate. God is the Supreme Court. A theocracy is a nation where God is in charge. And Moses set up Israel as a nation where God was in charge. And for 400 years, God was in charge of Israel officially in a theocratic state where the the rule was God was in charge. He set up judges. The people were supposed to have a personal relationship with God. And when they didn't know what to do, when they got stumped in their own relationship with God, they would go ask the judge, and the judge would tell them the right thing to do. And if you read the book of Judges about that time and those judges, during a 400-year period, um, that went really, really bad. And Israel rejected their national theocracy after 400 years of of judges in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They went to Samuel, who was the last judge, and said, dude, this ain't working. Um, We don't want to do this anymore. We don't we don't want to be a people directly connected to God and trying to figure out our own stuff. We, we want something different. We want a king. And in 1 Samuel 8, they said, we, we want a king. We need a king. Uh, if we're going to be a real country, we need a real king. And Israel experienced the rise of the kingship, of royalty, of nobility, with Israel's first king. His name was Saul. No relation to the New Testament Saul, who later became Paul. Totally different character in Scripture. But it's interesting because the reasons behind 
Israel's desire for a king showed you that things were going to go wrong immediately. Israel wanted a king first and foremost because they wanted national significance. They went to Samuel and said, we're not like everyone else. We're different. And everyone sees us as different. And yeah, we got the whole God thing going for us and we understand that, you know, we're God's people and all that, but we don't feel like everyone else and we think to have national significance, to be respected globally, like we need, we need to be like everyone else. The second reason they wanted a king was for cultural respect. You know, kings ride around and they see each other and they make treaties and they do all that stuff. They didn't have anybody to do that for them. He said, you know, we, we've got God who, because Israel wasn't allowed idols, they couldn't even see God. They've, they've just got this presence of God that's in this tabernacle that they can't even go in and look at. And they're like, you know, culturally we feel like misfits because we, we say we're following God, but we'd rather have a king. And really what they wanted when you study carefully through Scripture is they were looking for government-established religion. God set up Israel to be a people who would have relationships with him individually. And they would all follow God and they wouldn't need a king and they, they wouldn't need a governor and they, you know, they, they wouldn't need senators and they wouldn't need a... Because they would all follow God. And they kind of said, you know, we're tired of carrying all the burden ourselves. Um, let's just get a king and he can tell us what to do. And if he tells us to follow God, we'll do that. But let's, you know, we're, we're tired of trying to live up to God. We need a king. And literally the book of Judges, three times in the book of Judges, there's a verse that says, in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They were looking for someone to tell him what to do. Like, we're not close enough to God to really know. We're not following God, so just give us someone to tell us what to do. And for the first time in Israel, the establishment of a king meant the deconstruction or the destruction of the theocracy or God on the throne of people's hearts. And for the first time in Israel, the people looked for God and king instead of God is king. And we see a real divide in Israel because the people wanted God and king rather than God is king, and things began to crumble. So Israel found Saul. They set him up as king, and less than 40 years went by before he blew it. I mean, he blew it terribly because it wasn't God and king. It was kind of king and God, and it just wasn't working well for Israel. And when the rise of the kingship under Saul failed, Israel finally then realized they didn't just need a king but they needed a godly king. They needed someone who would put God first and show them how to put God first. And Israel experienced the, God of, the rise of a godly kingship with David. And this is where David enters the story of Scripture because God sets the pages of a nation who is totally desperate for someone to connect to God, to help people live to God. And in steps David, right as God begins to look for a man with a God-shaped heart. Now, the search is interesting. If you have your Bible, I want you to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13 with me and hang there in 1 Samuel 13 because we'll be there for the rest of our time together. But in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we learn something interesting about what I call the search. So when we look at at this outline of a God-shaped heart, the first thing we see is this search for someone with a God-shaped heart. And here's the reality. If you're looking at your notes today, God was looking for a king that cared more about the presence of God than the power of God in their life. I want you to see that, and I hope you wrote that down. God was looking for a king who cared more about the presence of God than the power of God in their life. Now, if you were here on Easter Sunday, we learned that when you go behind the veil, the presence of God always brings the power of God. 
As a matter of fact, you never have the presence of God without the power of God. But if you're just looking for the power of God and not caring about the presence of God, you might miss both. But it's kind of sad because when we look at life, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people, and sometimes I am one of these people, there's a lot of times that I want the power of God without the presence of God. I just need the power of God at the time. There's a lot of people that desire the blessings of God, but they're not willing to have any obedience to God. There's a lot of people who will accept Jesus' ultimate sacrifice without being willing to sacrifice anything of their own to be close to him. And there are a lot of people who, for them, God can become and has become a genie in a bottle that's to be controlled rather than a God in heaven that's to be followed. And it's funny how much, as I look into the life of David, how much I see a nation living very much like the United States of America today, where we want what God has for us, but we're not sure if we really want God. And that's where Saul was as he tried to set up the kingship, and that didn't work. Saul said, I want God, but I want him on my terms. I want God, and when I need God, I'll let him know, but I I really want a God that I can control. I just, I need what God has, don't know that I want all of God. And God said, that's that's not going to work, Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, we see basically a, a casting call. We see the first ever global search for what God is looking for. Now, in, a, in our country, we would call, this is like a casting call for like American Idol, right? Like God says, I'm looking for someone in the country who can do this. Now, I don't know that Israel would have called it Israeli idols because idols were forbidden in Israel. So they probably would have called it something else, like Israeli, really important person. But this was like a national casting call. God says, I'm, look, I'm looking for the come one, come all. I'm looking for the very best of the best in this. And here's what God says I'm looking for. He told Saul, your kingdom will not endure, 1 Samuel 13, 14. For the Lord has sought out a man, circle those words, God said, I'm searching for someone. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and he's appointed him ruler of his people because you've not kept the Lord's command. God says, Saul, I'm looking for someone who will do what I tell him to do. I'm looking, Saul, I'm looking for someone who loves me more than what I can give them. And here's what we learn from the life of Saul that I think it's important for all of us to understand. It's impossible to do God's thing your way. Like it's impossible for you to say, I'm going to follow God, but I'm going to do it this way. Because that makes you God, not God. So when God says, live this way, and you says, I think I'm going to live that way, you're saying to God, you're not God. Like I, <clears throat> I appreciate the parts of you that I need, but really I'm going to do things my way. And this is what Saul did. God would say, hey, Saul, go do one, two, and three. And Saul would say, okay, I'll do one, two, three, and four. Like, I just want to throw that one out. I thought, I thought we should do that too. And God would give Saul another chance. And he'd say, no, Saul, go do A, B, C. And Saul would do A, B, D. And he would say, you know, I, I just think this was a better way. Like, this was just easier to do. And every time God told Saul to do something, Saul would do it, but he'd put his own little twist on it, and he proved to God that I'm going to follow me not you. And God said, that's not, that's not going to work. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, if you have your Bibles open still, I want you to flip over to 1 Samuel 16. We see again what God is looking for. 
And God is searching for someone who has a God-shaped heart. Samuel, who, who would have been like God's Ryan Seacrest, right? Like he led this search and like hosted the competition, went from town to town to try to find this person. He ended up in David's town, Bethlehem, and he ended up at David's house, and he ended up talking to David's dad, and he saw David's brother, and he thought, man, this, like, this has to be the guy. But listen to what God said to him in 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The heart. So God says, I'm looking for someone with a God-shaped heart. And when I find that person, the person who has a God-shaped heart is going to have a God-shaped life. So we go from the search to the missing son. Stay with me in 1 Samuel 16, because Samuel shows up, knocks on the door of David's house, and here's how all this goes down. Everyone is there but the man with the God-shaped heart. It says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, as David's older brother, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. So clearly he was big and good looking, according to 1 Samuel 16, 7. Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and had him pass in front of Samuel, but, Sam, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons, who I assume all had weird names, pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We're not going to sit down until... He arrives. So he sent for him and he had him brought in. He was, uh, he was glowing with health and he had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And here's a couple of cool things that you need to know about David as you and I try to be like Jesus, the Messiah, the son of of David. Before David's name is ever mentioned in Scripture, we're told about his heart and his spirit. Because God wasn't looking for David. God was looking for a person whose heart and whose spirit were totally committed to him. His name just happened to be David. And what we find out as we read through Scripture, David not only loved God, clearly, because that was what God was looking for, but he was led by the Spirit of God according to 1 Samuel 16, 13. It says, So Samuel took the horn of oil, he anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And here's what's cool about David, who would become the greatest leader in the history of Israel. Great leaders are usually the greatest followers first. The reason God could use David is because David was willing to follow God. The reason God could not use Saul is because Saul was not willing to follow God. Do I think Saul loved God? Probably, but he didn't follow God, so that eliminated him. And it's, it's funny how the church today has stopped asking the second half of the equation as we try to have a heart for God like David did. And you say, what do you mean by that? I don't want you to answer this question out loud, but I want you to think about how easily the answers come to the questions. Question number one, do you love God? Like you, you think about that question, do you love God? And we all think, yes. Well, yeah, of course. 
Okay, question number two. Will you do anything God tells you to do? How come we don't as quickly say, well, yeah, of course. You see how we've missed the equation in American Christianity today? Do you love God? Yes, okay, that's enough. No, God wasn't just looking for someone who loved him. God was looking for someone who would follow him. Follow him when it was hard. Follow him when it was easy. Follow him when it led to tremendous blessing. Follow him when it led to tremendous burden. And David was willing to not only love God, but he was willing to follow God with whatever God would give him. And why is it that we think we can be such great Christians that we can really love God, but we're not sure about following God? Because I don't know about you, but I pause. Like, I, in my spirit, I pause. Christian, do you love God? Yes. Christian, will you do whatever God asks you to? It, I, I would I'd like to see what he's going to ask me to do first, right? I mean, don't we pause there and say, well, I mean, I think. But there's a level of trust before we hit obedience. And for some of us, there's, there's stuff that this book clearly says. Do you love God? Yes. Are you willing to live according to this? I don't know. It's kind of hard. So God says, I'm going to shape Jesus and followers of Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. I'm going to shape people who follow Jesus to be like David. Because this search led to this missing son who showed us this person whose heart and whose spirit were totally devoted to God, which leads us ultimately to the son of David that we will see later on in Scripture through the life of Jesus. Now, what's cool is we begin to put the pieces together. We understand the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. We actually understand the rejection of the ministry of Jesus a little better when we think of him as the son of David and we know who David is because Jesus was born into a world that was looking more for a Saul than for a David. Why would Israel, why would Israel crucify Jesus if he was David? Because they were looking for Saul. They were looking for David. They were looking for someone. What was the list 2,000 years before? They were looking for someone who would bring national significance. They weren't as concerned with themselves spiritually as they were nationally. They really needed someone to overthrow Rome, not to overthrow the sin in their own hearts. That was really what they would have preferred. They were looking for somebody who would bring cultural respect. They were sick of paying taxes to Rome. They were sick of being treated like dogs by Rome. And frankly, they were sick of, like they continue to be 2,000 years later, having the whole world look at them and say, that's not your land, you don't belong here. They were sick of culture not respecting them as a nation. And they continue to be sick of it. And they'd like someone to change that. And then they were looking for, once again, I believe in my heart, government-established religion. Yes, they wanted to follow God after God gave them a king that could rule the world. If God would set up their government, they would be tremendous followers of Jesus. And on one day of history, they were. We celebrated as Palm Sunday. Jesus came riding into town. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. They thought this is going to be his moment. And they all basically played hail to the chief as he rode into town. And when they realized he wasn't there to overthrow Rome, they're like, forget it. They wanted Saul, not David. They were looking for someone with a heart for God. They were looking for someone who could sit on a throne for God. They needed God and king rather than God is king. And I feel like maybe we've missed it a little bit today in our country. Because some, some of the, you know, when we look at the landscape today, we, we have to live in the most politically divided 
America that has existed since the time of the Civil War. I mean, it, it is so far divided. And, and some of my best Christian friends that sit on both sides of the aisle are all looking for someone to fix America. Like we're looking for God and King, right? Or maybe King and God. Who will lead America back? And Jesus is saying, would you stop worrying about God and King? And would you just start worrying about God is King in your own life? Like what if you just worry about you? Instead of it, like, what if you just, what if you just follow God? Like it was originally intended for the people of Israel. What if you just follow God? Could that change your life, your family? Maybe a a street on your neighborhood, maybe your neighborhood, maybe your community, your city, your state. Yet what what if we started on the inside out? Instead of putting someone on the throne, we, we just put someone on the throne of our heart. Would that make things different? See, I think if we focused as much personally on God as king, in America as we do on God and King, on the television shows, on the talk radio, on the political action committees, I believe true revival might come to our hearts and our lives if we focused on us and only us. I really believe that. And this is what David did. David wasn't looking for the throne. David was looking for God. And when God was able to be put on the throne of David's heart, he said, now David, I can trust you to be put on the throne of Israel. When Israel asked for God to lead their nation to the right king or through the right king, they lost sight of God personally and started focusing on the national problem. But when one man asked for God to lead him personally, it brought tremendous focus to his life and his leadership and his nation. You know, my my goal for the people in this room, for the people who go to our church, for the people who are going to listen to this thing on podcast or watch it, through the internet next week. My goal is that all of you, when you get to Labor Day, we just came from Memorial Day. My goal is that in the next 90 days when you get to Labor Day, you'd have more of a heart for God at Labor Day than you did at Memorial Day. And as we study the life of David, every week I'm going to give you some action steps on what you can do to develop your heart so that you can have a God-shaped heart the way that David did. So let me give you the first steps of what I call my action plan my summer of 2014 heart for God plan. Here's my heart for me and for you to develop more of a heart for God 90 days from now than we have today. Number one, you have to intentionally make time for God this summer. I know you're busy. I'm busy. My kids are busy and they're only 12 and 10. Like I know most of us don't have much time for anything outside of what we're already doing. But if you want to have more of a heart for God than you do now, you have to make time for that. You have to make time a little bit every day. You have to make time throughout the week. You've got to get here on Sunday when you can. If my kid's got an early soccer game, come to the late service. When my kid's got a soccer game after lunch, come to the early service. Say, well, we're out of town at a tournament. Watch it online. You've got to make time to plug in this summer to the spiritual food that's going to be brought at this church. You've just got to do that. Secondly, you have to spend time with God. So make time for God, but spend time with God. When we really begin to learn about the heart of David this summer, we're going to see that David continually spent time with God. And here's my challenge for those of you who aren't doing a lot of that yet or who need, give me a good plan, Christian, to spend time with God. This summer, read about the life of David. You can do that in First and Second Samuel. We're there in your Bibles today, or you can jot that down to look in the table of contents later. In the first two chapters of the book of 1 Kings, which come right after 2 Samuel. I promise you, if you do that and you've never done that, 
you're going to come up to me or your Christian friends at some point this summer and say, did you know this was in the Bible? Like the story of the life of David is the craziest story. Why someone hasn't turned that into a trilogy that's going to make hundreds of millions at the box office, I don't know. But the life of David is crazy. It's at times the greatest spiritual revival you've ever seen. And at times it's like rated NC-17 and like you can't really tell your kids what's going on in his life. I mean, it's crazy. But it will show you the heart of someone who lives the ups and downs and tries to still follow God. After you're done reading about the life of David, I challenge you, letter B, go read the writings of David. These are found in the Psalms. Specifically, Psalms 1 through 50. Actually, it's about Psalm 1 through 41. That's the core of David's writings. And read the fine print under the psalm. Like Psalm 51 will say, Psalm 51, David wrote this after his incident with person X. And you'll think, ooh, I remember that. What was he feeling then? And you'll be able to read what allowed David to have a heart for God in the midst of all the trials in his life. Third, I want you to learn to meditate within worship moments. What we learn from the life of David is David was possibly the greatest worshiper that ever existed on planet earth. Not just because of his outward expression of worship, which you could see and tell. You could watch David and say, man, that guy really loves God. But his internal worship in the moments of worship, in hard times and in good times, show us the life of a man who really tried to live in a spirit of worship. So here's my challenge for you. Every morning, try to, in the morning, as you're getting ready, as you're getting prepped for your day, have some worship music playing in your house. Get, get something downloaded on Pandora. Get, get something on your playlist. If you're old school, like in the 80s, and, and you're making a mixtape, you know, just get, it, get a mixtape and put some songs on there. And when side A stops, just push stop and flip side B and then play it again or burn a CD if you still do that kind of thing. Figure out a way to get some worship music in your house in the morning and then in the evening. Set your alarm clock on your phone to wake you up with a worship song. I promise you, you'll be amazed at the temperature of your life and stress if you have worship, worshipful moments in the morning and an evening before you go to bed. And then use your commute this summer to live in worship. Just try it and see if your heart doesn't get shaped a little more like David's. Number four. I want to challenge you this summer finally to fight the big spiritual battles in life you've been running from, you've been avoiding, or you've just never been able to finally knock over. We're going to find out that David was a a great warrior. He was a champion. And he looked trouble in the eye and and he met it head on. I want to challenge you this summer. What are the things you've been avoiding? What are the things that always kick your butt spiritually? What are the things you've been running from or you've been denying? Face those and fight those this summer. Number five. I want to challenge you to get obedient to the difficult spiritual things in life and learn to become a great follower. There are things that Jesus asks all of us to do with our schedule, with our marriages, with our parenting, with our lives, with our attitudes, with our actions, with our emotions, with our finances. There are things God asks us to do that are very difficult. And some of us have been avoiding some of the harder areas. This summer... Find a way to get obedient to the difficult things. Why? Because you can trust God. Do you love God? Yeah. Will you do whatever God tells you? If we could get ourselves to the point this year by saying yes, and then Lord help me, um, that would be a good point to be at spiritually. And then finally, number six, I want to challenge you to ask every day for the Spirit of God to live within you. 
I want to challenge you to get a post-it note or a sticky note, put it on your alarm clock, put it on your bathroom sink, put it in your car, put it on your office desk. Somewhere where you will see, where you will see the challenge, pray for God's spirit to be in you today. I want to challenge you every day this summer, beginning today, to pray that God's spirit would be within you. And here's, here's my like money back guarantee for you. If you do these six things, I promise you when you get to Labor Day, you're gonna be closer to God and have more of a God-shaped heart then than you do now. I promise you if you will commit to doing these things. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is the greatest man who's ever lived and walked the face of planet Earth. And if we are his followers and if we become like him, I believe our lives, according to John 10.10, will become better on planet Earth as well while we wait till one day go spend eternity with him in heaven. Can we pray together?